In this mini-series, we've been asking, at least up to this point, four of five questions. The first question was, what is faith? The second, what is repentance? The third, what is sin? And now the fourth, what is regeneration? And last time, if you were with us, we talked a great deal about the doctrine of regeneration. That word, that concept, that teaching, that theology is that because we are dead in trespasses and sins, totally depraved, mind, will, and emotions, every single person without exception, anybody who's ever lived, anybody who is living, anybody who will yet live, everyone depraved, sinful, not always as sinful as one could be because we have, thank the Lord, the Holy Spirit that retards all of the sin that we could otherwise do in our lives and in the life of our world itself. But we are nevertheless in every fiber of our being, sinful through and through, just like we sang in the song. And because of that, the only way that we can have God change our state, uh, change our life, is, as we read from that passage in Ezekiel 11, God giving us a new heart. And I want to continue to talk about this very thing. I alluded last time to the concept that what God does in giving us a supernatural, efficacious call, a, a regenerating heart, is monergistic. And that word may be new to some of you. Mono, of course, is just the word one or only. And the, the word that is attached to that is the word out of which we get the word energy, monergistic. It means this in theological circles, that when God creates this new heart in us, when he takes out that heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh, a, a supple heart, a, a ready heart to follow his statutes and obey his rules, that only comes about by what God does by causing us to be born again from heaven. It's nothing that we can conjure up on our own. It's nothing that we manufacture. It's not anything that we deserve. It's not anything that we earn. We can't merit God coming and creating in us a new heart. It is by his sovereign will. It is according to his sovereign plan. And it gives us what we desperately need but cannot do on our own. And that is, my friends, why we call it grace. Grace. God's favor upon us. And when we receive such favor, it comes from God alone with no cooperation by ourselves. In this sense... If it were, we wouldn't call it monogistic, monergistic, we would call it synergistic. Sin, the Greek word soon, spelled S-Y-N in English but pronounced soon, is the idea of with or together with. And that is that some believe that this, this cooperation between God and man allows us to respond after God gives what we could uh, call maybe a booster shot of grace. God just uh, sort of starts the process, and then we take over from there, 
And as a result of getting that little uh, jump start, we then repent and believe. Well, the Bible does not teach such a doctrine. Because if it did, you and I would take credit for the part we did. And that's why we say that salvation is all of grace. In fact, it has been said so many times, even by me, but it bears repeating, the only thing that we bring to salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. That's all we bring. And what God does by His efficacious call is He reaches down from heaven and He opens up that stony heart of ours, mine included, and takes out that stony heart and replaces it with a heart that wants to repent and believe. You say, well, if that happens logically and if regeneration starts first and it precedes faith, how long after my heart is regenerated do I believe? And here's my answer, immediately, immediately. So much so that the Bible doesn't speak of it in those logical slash theological terms about about regeneration preceding faith. It's, It's as quick as this. He gives you the heart and you believe. He gives you the heart and you repent. Because when you have the new heart to understand the gospel, even if you've heard the gospel many times before, you don't understand the gospel. It's it's of no consequence to you. But when he regenerates your wicked sinful heart, my wicked sinful heart, Immediately upon the regeneration of my heart, I believe. I hear the gospel and I respond to it. And you may say, well, I heard it a thousand times before. But what was the difference between a thousand times before and the moment that I believed and repented of my sins? And I tell you the answer is regeneration. Do you want to see this from a scriptural viewpoint? Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. This is what the Lord says to us through His Word. Of course, we know John chapter 1 so very well, and we know that the light, Jesus Christ, has come in the world to dispel the darkness, according to verse 4 and 5. And then we see another mention of the light in verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Now, what kind of light does he give the light of himself, the light of the gospel, the light of gospel truth? Well, it, it comes to everyone, but why don't every one of those persons then immediately believe? Well, it's because there is a gospel call and a, a kind of call that we would call the general call or, or the outward call of the gospel that is preached to everyone. I'm, I'm preaching to you this morning. There are pastors and preachers all around the world who are preaching on this day. And as they all preach, if they're faithful preachers and if they're godly preachers and if they're biblical preachers, they're preaching the gospel, the gospel that Jesus Christ saves sinners like you and like me. And so as I preach, it is a preaching to everyone indiscriminately, everyone who's here. Everyone who will hear this message maybe on Timeless Truth Today, our radio ministry at some point, maybe in years future. And, and this kind of call of the gospel is you must repent and believe in such a gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. 
And there may be some who are here who aren't true believers, and you've heard that message again a thousand times, and the difference between that day and perhaps even this day is because your heart has not been regenerated monergistically by God himself. He alone is the one who does it, and perhaps this is that salvation day for you. You heard it a thousand times. You're hearing it with your spiritual eyes and ears for the first time today. And that light, that gospel that goes out indiscriminately to everyone on the planet so that everyone is responsible to believe and repent gives way to what we call an efficacious call, an effective call, an inner call. Not just a call by way of a microphone or a videotape or some electronic means where that call goes out to believe and receive the gospel and it falls on some deaf ears and blind eyes. But this kind of call, the inner call, the, the effective call, the efficacious call is a kind of call that comes into your ears because God has created new ears for you to hear, new eyes for you to see. That's what I might call a light with a capital L. This is, this is a light, and it only came by Jesus Christ. And verse 10 says he was in the world. That means he came into our world, and, and the world was made through him. That means that he's the creator God of the universe, yet the world did not know him. If, if you and I aren't given a regenerated heart in order to believe we're a part of the world, and we're a part of the world that doesn't know him, and we will remain a part of the world that doesn't know him. He was in the world, the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And then this chilling statement, verse 11, he came to his own, that means his own people, the Jews, he came to his own, his own people, Israelites, and his own people, what? Did not receive him. Sad, tragic. But out of a number of Jews, and as we see the gospel through the book of Acts, out of a number of Gentiles across the world from the beginning of time until now, out of those numbers of Jewish people and Gentile people, and that was the designation at that time, there were Jews and there were non-Jews, and out of the Jewish number and out of the Gentile number, there were some, and they're given to us in verse 12. Right after this chilling statement in verse 11, we have verse 12, but... Notice the contrast, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, someone's going to immediately say, now, everything, preacher, you just said about regeneration and God opening the eyes of a person, I don't see that there. It only says those who believed in his name. So that must take priority. That must be first Because it says nothing about regeneration. It says nothing about about anything that God's doing. It's talking about what you're responsible to do and I'm responsible to do, and that is to believe in his name. And yes, that says that, but let's read on. To those who believe in his name, he gave the right or the privilege, I'd like to translate it, the privilege to become children of God. And how does that happen, I ask you? Verse 13. Who were born, this is how it happens, my friends, who were born... Not of blood, 
You didn't get into the kingdom because of your ancestry, nor of the will of the flesh. didn't come by your, your own will, nor the will of man. didn't come by your parents. didn't come by anything other than what it says at the end of verse 13, but of whom? God. So how were you born? Of God. Born of God. In John chapter 3, as we read last time, it's born from above. Something you and I can't manufacture. You and I can't be born physically by our own will when we come into this world, when we come out of the womb. And we can't become born again or born from above from a spiritual vantage point unless God is pleased to bear us from above, to come down to this earth and to search and seek and save the lost. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He came to this earth in the form of a man, fully man. And he sought to seek and save the lost. Now you say, well, that's fine and good, and so therefore he ought to. If he's come to seek and save the lost, then that means by logical extension, that every single person in the history of the world should be sought and saved who are lost. You say, well, that, that's obviously not true. Not every single person who's ever lived or who is living or, or who will ever live is saved, delivered from their sins. That's the doctrine of universalism, and it's not taught in Holy Scripture. If that were true, then there would be no reason for the existence of hell. There would be no hell. There would be nobody there. You say, oh, well, that was what Jesus said about being prepared for the devil and his angels. Well, the devil is a kind of kingdom wrecker, and he also takes people who are convinced of his message and his cunning, and he takes them to hell with himself, including the devil and his angels. And there are people who want to go there, who don't want Christianity, who don't want Christ, who don't, who don't want to believe the gospel, who don't want to repent of their sins. And the answer to that is, and God will choose to allow them to stay in their reprobated condition, reprobates. And they will go there because they want to go there. And they don't want to have anything to do with God. They don't want to have anything to do with the gospel. They want their pleasure-seeking, and they want their life and their lifestyle, and they want nothing to do with grace. But those who want grace and those who want the gospel and those who love the gospel and those who repented of their sins and believed in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that you actually can only affirm such a thing if God grants you to hear it. And he cares for you to be born again from above. And this is what the Bible teaches. You say, prove it to me. Look at John 6. John 6. Look at verse 41. Don't miss the language here. This is John 6, 41 to 44. So the Jews grumbled about him, grumbling about Christ, 
saying he's the bread of life, saying that they must partake of the bread of life, that is, they must drink his blood and eat his flesh, and you say, that's gross. He's using that, of course, as a metaphor for saying, you must take me, you must take me into your life, as though you're ingesting food, as though you're drinking something. You, you ingest me, you, you take me into your life, you must have me, is what Jesus is saying. And in John 6, 41, the Jews grumbled about, it, about this. Because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? This is just a regular guy. He's trying to make himself out to be equivalent to God, the Father. Verse 43, here's Jesus' answer. He answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me. Now, now, dear people, John 6, 44, this is what the Bible says. I'll simply read it to you. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, sent Jesus, does what? Draws him. Draws him. Not, Not drawing you coercively as though... You would never want to believe, you would never want to go to heaven, you would never want to be one of God's own, and he made that true of you, and you still didn't want it afterwards. He draws you into a relationship with himself, and when your eyes are open, you see that that's the very relationship that you must have. That's the gospel. It's sweet to you, not bitter but it only becomes sweet to you and not bitter because you're drawn by the Father through the Son into such a relationship. You say, I'm still not convinced. Look look at verse 63 of the same chapter. Jesus tells them plainly, including his disciples and, and many others who heard it, Verse 63 of John 6, it is the Spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit, it is the Spirit who gives what? Life. Can it be any clearer than that? It's the Holy Spirit who gives life. Well, what does the flesh do? I want to know, what does the flesh do? Is it the will of man? Is it the will of my own desire? Is it something I do? Is it something I have to do? Is it something that I do in the process synergistically? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is what? No help at all. Now, folks... Could it be any clearer? The flesh is of no help. It's of no avail. That's why the song says, Nothing in my hand I bring, only to thy cross I cling. You see? This is is what the Word of God says. And then Jesus adds his own words, his own powerful authoritative words. The words, verse 63, that I have spoken to you, they are spirit and life. So much so that when Jesus stood outside that, that tomb of Lazarus, he said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus hopped out of there like a new man. This is, this is what the Bible teaches. And then verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew. His omniscience, he's 
God in human flesh. He knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And who's he referring to there? Judas. Judas. And he said, verse 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. This is sovereignty. This is the sovereign spirit who brings life out of the dead. Do you remember that from Ezekiel 36 and 37 from last Sunday? For those of you who weren't here, we talked about Ezekiel 36 and how he, he, Ezekiel, the son of man, was prophesied that the Holy Spirit is in fact going to put a new spirit within those who are dead spiritually so that they can be alive spiritually. And then in Ezekiel 37, there was this huge object lesson of these dead, dry, dreary bones in the wilderness. And those bones, the Holy Spirit through the prophecy of Ezekiel, made those bones come alive. That's Israel. It's the future of Israel. And by the way, according to Ezekiel 11... And that question that Ezekiel asked, what about the remnant? What about the remnant? That's the remnant. That's the remnant. And in Ezekiel 37, they will be brought to life. The bones will come together and there'll be a loud shout and the sinews and the muscles will all be reformed and they will be given new life because the Holy Spirit will breathe on them and they will come alive. You know what that is? That's the object lesson about the doctrine of regeneration. This is is a doctrine you and I cannot do without. I'm still not convinced. Do you remember when I said to you, Titus 3, 3 to 5? Turn over with me in your Bibles to Titus 3. It's so clear, is it not? This is what God is is doing when when He gives us the sense of our life It's not something you and I crank up on our own. It's this, Titus 3. Notice what verse 3 says. For we ourselves were once foolish. This is our depravity now. Once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. That was me. That was my heart. That's what I was doing. I was passing my days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Verse 4, like those dry dead bones that Ezekiel talks about in Ezekiel 37, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. He delivered us from our sins. Notice, not because of works done by us in righteousness, no works of our own, including cooperating with God to get the deal done, but according to His own mercy, His mercy alone, by, here's the vehicular truth, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Washing of regeneration. Renewing of the Holy Spirit. You and I have to be renewed. This, this dead soul has to be renewed. It has to be made alive. It has to be regenerated. And you remember I told you that this regeneration is, is like a... It's like a thorough cleansing. It's like a washing, which is likened unto the metaphor of water. You say, how so? 
Well, I'll show you. Glad you ask. Look at Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5. This is, this is what happens when someone is, is made alive. And it uses this very metaphor of water in Ephesians chapter 5. You know, of course, this is talking about wives and husbands. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her, that is in sacrificial death, that he might sanctify her, that he might bring her to a position of holiness. And how is that done? Verse 26, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Do you see that? The, the, The regeneration that happens to a dead soul is that God regenerates that dead soul and makes it alive by the regenerating, washing, and cleansing by the Word of God. So the Holy Spirit does the washing and renewing, and the Word is His instrument. And that, my friends, is a stout brush. The Word is a stout brush, and it cleanses us, and it, and it takes all the barnacles of a dead life and causes us to be alive. You say, yeah, but we got to get back to that idea that you said earlier about depravity and that we're all sinful. Look, I've known a lot of of non-Christians who seem to be good old chaps. They seem to be really fine. Well, perhaps in some ways they are. But if you go to Ephesians chapter 2, you'll find out about what the Bible teaches regarding all of us, even those who outwardly seem to be good old chaps, good old fellas, nice ladies, children who just run and skip about because they're carefree. Have you ever had children yourself? I can testify eight times over, love them to death, and they are totally depraved. And they grow up with new ways of inventing such depravity. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. This is true of every man, woman, and child ever born. Ephesians 2, 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is not a pretty picture. It's, it's, it's not pretty, but it's true. It's true. We don't want to admit it, but, but this is true. But don't you love the contrast in verse 4? But God, but God, being rich in mercy, that is to forgive me of my sins because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. And what's the next line? He made us alive. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. He made us alive together. That's the doctrine of regeneration. There it is. 
made us alive. You could say born from above, born again, made us alive, new heart, new man, spirit within you, taking out the heart of stone, putting in the heart of flesh. There is, there's actually another one. Turn over to Colossians chapter 2. There's, there's actually another way of describing regeneration, and it uses the metaphor of circumcision. Now, that's getting really personal. Circumcision, yeah, right down in the metaphor to the place where our sin is so often exposed. Colossians chapter 2, look at verse 11. In Him, in Christ, also you were circumcised, not physical, not literal circumcision. Notice this, this is the metaphor. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. That tells you that it's not literal, it's not physical. By putting off, cutting away the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. See what happens? You and I are walking dead men. We're dead spiritually. And what happens is Christ comes to us and through the Holy Spirit raises us to new life and he does this by way of spiritual circumcision. You say, that's painful. Yes, it is. And spiritually speaking, when our sin is dealt with, there's pain, agony, anguish because I have to give up my sin. But remember, if I'm made alive, I want to give up my sin. I I want to say, rid me of this. Forgive me of this. Give me mercy about this. And then he changes immediately in verse 12 to the metaphor of baptism. Here's here's another way of talking about regeneration. Colossians 2.12, having been buried with him in baptism, not literal baptism, not water baptism, in which you were also raised with him. That's coming out metaphorically of the water with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You say, how powerful is regeneration? How powerful is the doctrine of regeneration? Well, number one, it can raise a dead man. And number two, it raises the dead man by the very Holy Spirit who actually raised Jesus Christ himself from the dead. That's power. God's powerful working. You say, how can I be saved? The first part of that, the glorious reality is you can't do it yourself. And he causes you to be alive, circumcises that flesh and puts you down in metaphorically to that water and raises you up to walk in newness of life. You say, hey, Lance, Is this something that you're talking about that's like New Testament stuff? I tell you this is Old and New Testament stuff. Go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 30. You say, aren't aren't you done yet? I'm, I'm getting to be convinced. Well, Deuteronomy chapter 30, we can't leave that out. You can't do a message on regeneration and leave Deuteronomy 29 and 30 out. Why? Because I tell you, this is what's been happening in the history of the world ever since the Old Testament. This is what's happening. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. Deuteronomy 36. 
Verse 6, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. Now this is speaking to the the Jews of which the males already had a physical circumcision, right? Eight today, circumcised. But this is talking about a circumcision of the heart. And it says that, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may what? Live. See the spiritual dynamic there? Old New Testament, doesn't matter. It's always been about the circumcision of the heart. That was part of the Jews' problem. When they were circumcised of the foreskin, literally speaking, physically, they thought things like this. I'm in. I'm in. Hey, if anybody's in the kingdom, it's me. I'm like every other Jewish boy, I'm circumcised. And as the leaders of all their families, all the women are included, all the children, we're all in. Oh, and about that obedience stuff, yeah, I'm not into that. I don't want to do that. But I'm in. I'm in eternally. But as far as the everyday obedience stuff, following statutes, obeying your rules, no, no. That's why he says you've got to circumcise your heart. And, and then look at one chapter before, chapter 29, verse 2. And this is most interesting, and this shows you the doctrine of regeneration, and it shows you in one passage the old and the new. Deuteronomy 29, look at verse 2. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt. You all know they were in bondage to Egypt. How many years? 400 years. So generation after generation after generation, you saw before your eyes in the land of Egypt what the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and, the, and, the, and those great wonders. You remember all those signs, the, the ten signs, let my people go, let my people go. You say, yeah, I saw it, I saw it, I saw it. And guess what? I'm circumcised, so I'm in, and I saw these great things that happened when we were delivered from Egypt, so I'm in. If anybody's in, I'm in. Well, wait a minute. Verse 4. Deuteronomy 29.4. This really mucks it up. This, this messes the whole thing up. I, I thought I'm in because I'm circumcised, and I saw all these things, and my grandpa told me, and his grandpa told him, and I, 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 I don't get this. Verse 4. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Wait a second. You just said I had the eyes and ears to see everything that happened. You were there. You were told something. And like I said last time, you heard it, but you didn't hear it. You saw it, but you didn't see it. And what has to happen in the doctrine of regeneration is what verse 4 says. You have not received a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. I've led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you and your sandals have not worn off of your feet, which is a bona fide miracle. You have not eaten bread. You've not drunk wine or strong drink that you may know that I am the Lord your God. And then you go to the next chapter and verse 6. Here's the reason you didn't see it. Here's the reason you didn't acknowledge it. Because you didn't have ears to hear and eyes to see. You needed a heart circumcision. That's the doctrine of regeneration. 
Now, this is uh, first of the year, 2020. We're all being so very diligent to do our full year Bible reading, right? We always start off so well, don't we? Petering out about, you know, February 20th. Well, if we're going to be reading in our Bibles, beginning, most of us, January 1, you know, Genesis 1 and 2, and you, you keep reading, and there that you're reading, you're going to come to your reading, and you're going to come maybe, say, for instance, to the uh, prophet Jeremiah. And you're going, to, you're going to hear some of this language about, you know, circumcision of the heart. But there, in Jeremiah 4.4, 4, for example, you're going to hear this. God says, circumcise your hearts. And then you and I are going to have a problem theologically, aren't we? Well, I can't, I can't do that. I, 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 I'm totally depraved. I'm sinful. I'm wicked. So how can the Bible say, circumcise your hearts when the circumcision has to come from above and only the great physician can cut on me spiritually to create in me a, a living soul? And doesn't Genesis 2.7 say, and the Spirit breathed into Adam the body and he breathed into him and the soul became a living being. So, so if the soul is dead without the Holy Spirit breathing into the soul to make the soul come alive, I can't circumcise my heart. And yet Jeremiah 4.4 4 says that the heart must be circumcised, and it's like a gospel call. You, you wicked Israelites, circumcise your hearts. Do you know what, my friends? That is absolutely no different than me saying this to you right now. Believe and repent of your sins, every one of you. Believe and repent right now. That's that's your responsibility, and you must do it. And if you don't do it, you'll be forever cut off from Christ. You must do it. That's what what Jeremiah 4.4 is saying. Circumcise your hearts. So that when we come to the realization that we can't do it, no amount of church attendance, no amount of Bible reading, no amount of money giving, no amount of prayers, no, about, no uh, amount of church activities being done, no amount of any of those things will allow you to have the heart circumcised. But you're commanded to do it. So what do you do? You're like me. I can't, I can't do it. Fall on your face before the living God. And if you're doing it and it's genuine, it's only because He's circumcising your heart. That's what the Bible teaches. You say, no tension there, only, only the tension of you and me saying, I don't get that, and since I don't get that, I'm going to reject it. That's the only tension. The idea is this. You must circumcise your heart. You must repent and believe. And since that can only be done by God, you ask Him for the gift of repentance. You ask Him for the gift of faith. You ask Him for the Holy Spirit circumcision of the heart. And if that's true and genuine and that's exactly what you're doing, if you're truly repenting and believing, it's only because he's gotten you to a place where you have new life. And as I said, simultaneously, you repent and believe. I think it's beautiful. I think it's a beautiful doctrine. And it comes together so beautifully that God gives us the opportunity to be born again. You don't don't have to turn there. 
I'm out of time, but then again, who cares? <laughs> James chapter 1, just listen to these bulleted verses. You don't have to turn there, but James chapter 1 says this. If you want to see how our salvation comes about, James 1.18, of his own, of his own will, of his own persuasion, of his own sovereignty, he, God, God the Father, brought us forth by the word of truth. He did it by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Don't miss that. Of his own will, he brought us forth. Lazarus, come forth. 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. If you ever studied Peter before, you see this time and time again. 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born from above to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He has caused us to be born again. If you were giving your your testimony, you might say something like this. Well, tell us your story. And I would say, well, he caused me to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's biblical. You know what we often do? We often, maybe unintentionally, And maybe through our excitement to share with people our testimony, we talk about how sinful we are and how wicked we are and all the wicked things we do. And sometimes we enumerate some of the wickednesses that we were involved. Well, I was a drinker and I was this and I was a fornicator and I... And they start talking about all that. You know what? I don't want to talk about all that. I want to talk about the fact that he caused me to be born again. The sin part, we're all in that. Even if you didn't do some of the sins I did and I didn't do some of the sins you did, we all did sins for which we should rightly and justly be condemned for hell forever. And yet, the Bible says he has caused us to be born again. And he says it in verse 23 of the same chapter. Since you have been born again, born from above. And how is it, Peter? Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Well, what is that like? Well, I'll tell you. He says, this word is the good news that was preached to you. So that's what I'm doing this morning, preaching the good news to you, preaching to you the gospel. We're preparing our hearts for the Lord's Supper. The only way that you and I are looking forward to the Lord's Supper is because he caused us to be born again. And it was through the living and abiding word of God. The instrumentality of the word caused me to come alive. And okay, one other passage. You know, we talk about this living and abiding word But I also told you from John 1, right where we started, that there's this thing called light. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is is a great place to end. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You want to talk about light. You want to talk about Jesus as the light of the world. You want to talk about what light signifies as a metaphor. You can't go to a better place than 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 3 says, And even if our gospel is veiled, even if not everybody responds because their eyes have a veil of unbelief over them, it is veiled to those who are perishing. 
In their case, the God, small g, of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Do you know that we are bound by our own sin and we're also bound by a Satan, a diabolos, a a devil who keeps our minds blinded as unbelievers to keep us from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So if that's our final end, if that's the end of the story, if that's the last chapter, we're hopeless. Our minds are unbelieving. Our eyes are veiled. I can't see the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ who's the very image of God. But Paul says, verse 5, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Why, Paul? For God. Notice, here's the reason given. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. Where did God say that? Genesis 1. Let there be light. And physically it was so, and now spiritually it is so. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, the very light of what happened at creation when physically light became our world, he has shown in our hearts, Paul says, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That light has shone in our hearts. That's regeneration. That's regeneration. So whether you're talking about life, whether you're talking about light, whether you're talking about circumcision, whether you're talking about a heart of stone, the only thing that we have is the glorious light of the gospel of the grace of God in the face of Jesus Christ who is his expressed image and God by his grace and mercy has allowed you and me if we're Christians to be lighted up. The light has shone into our hearts. I can't thank God you thank God enough. The light. I was in darkness and the light shone upon my heart. I'm alive. And now the things of this world, they mean nothing to me. Because Jesus Christ is preeminent. Let's bow together in prayer. Oh, Father, how can we thank you enough? How can we express our gratitude enough that you opened our eyes? You shone the light in the darkness just like creation. It was a creation that was a kind of creation that was void, formless. And you said, let there be light. And just like that, spiritually light shone into my heart. And upon the very first ray of light, I was given the gift of faith and repentance And so I believed and turned from my sin. And I embraced Jesus Christ as the Lord of light.
and he saved me. Oh, Father, thank you for such a glorious plan that caused this one, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God the Son, to come to this earth and to die on a cross for sinners like us so that myself and they would have mercy of the forgiveness of sins, just like the drinking of a cup, the cup emblematic of the very blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of sins, and the bread emblematic of the body of our Savior given for us in violent sacrificial death. Oh, Father, thank you for the plan of redemption and for the opportunity to have light shone in our dark hearts. Thank you for the gift. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.